Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. Mars Hill, as it was also called. At a little over 370 feet, the hill stood over the plain below, looking down on the city-state of Athens that surrounded it. To the east stood the towering Acropolis of Athens, and upon it the Parthenon dedicated to Athens' patron goddess, Athena. And to the west, uh, the punics where the Athenians would assemble to hear people speak from the open platform, the Bema, and they would speak freely about political matters. But the, to the north is where Paul's eyes fell most intently, because to the north was the Agora. The Agora was the marketplace, but it was more than a marketplace. It was where people gathered and socialized, a place where ideas were exchanged and debated, and even a place where folks looking to kill time would loaf about. And all throughout the Agora stood idols and altars. The Agora was much like the city in that respect, that there were idols and altars practically everywhere one turned in Athens. They decorated pillars and lined streets, they occupied positions of prominence and, of course, were housed in the city's great temples. And as Paul looked out over all the people in the market, surrounded by the false gods, his heart was deeply troubled. Just as it had been from the moment that he arrived in Athens. All these idols and altars, all these philosophers and thinkers, all these poets and politicians, and yet so few of them knew the truth. He had to act, and so he did. Every day he went and he reasoned and he debated with the Jews, with the Greek philosophers, with anyone who would listen, really. He spoke to Epicureans and Stoics and everyone in between, and that's exactly what got him here. Mars Hill, the Areopagus. He was standing before the men of Athens, the leaders, the decision makers, the people who made the choices that had powerful repercussions throughout the city. Not only in politics and philosophy, but in religious thinking as well. What would Paul say to them? How would he address these great thinkers and orators? Every year at Christmas, we tell stories and sing songs. It's a tradition that's so deeply ingrained that we would have a hard time imagining Christmas without such things. And one of the songs that we sing at Christmas time is one that I wanted to focus on this Sunday, Go Tell It on the Mountain. It's a great song. It tells very simply the story of Jesus coming into his world and proclaims that we should go and tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere about Jesus the Christ. It's a song hard to pin down historically. It was first published back in 1907, but its origins 
date back to at least the 1860s, but honestly, we don't know where it came from or who wrote it. The author is unknown, despite how well the song is known and how frequently it is rendered today. And I love this song because it tells us exactly what we should be doing as Christians this time of year and really all throughout the year, going and telling, spreading the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But why? Why should we as Christians be concerned with evangelism, with telling people about Jesus? Why was Paul literally standing on a hill about to tell these brilliant thinkers about Jesus? Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Today's the Sunday that we light the fourth candle on the Advent wreath symbolizing peace. Why peace? When we look at the world around us today, peace isn't something one sees an overabundance of. Mr. Carl mentioned the Middle East. The Middle East is in turmoil right now, especially a place called Aleppo. I'm sure you've heard of it. It has been called hell on earth, and the videos coming out of Aleppo are heartbreaking. A simple glance at the headlines, a quick scroll through Facebook, a passing perusal of the news channels will show you that our world is not at peace. Nations wage war with one another. Religious zealots stir up violence in their fervor for their false gods. Rebellious and angry people fight their own government sometimes, not even really knowing why. But even closer, even closer to home, there is this feeling in our nation of distress, disharmony, discord. And what often bothers me this time of year is that just as in Paul's day, everyone is out there trying to sell their goods and their gods, touting their wares as though they offer any hope of finding some measure of peace in life. Buy the newest and latest and greatest tech and you'll be happy. Buy the trendiest clothes. They'll get you noticed. Buy the most expensive makeup and it will make you beautiful. Buy the sleekest and fastest car and it will make you desirable. Buy the biggest house and it will make you the envy of all your friends. Buy the membership and it will give you the identity that you desperately crave. Buy the book and it will help you fix all of your problems. Buy the movie and it will distract you from the problems that the book didn't fix. Buy, purchase, spend, consume, pour out all your money on the altars, and the gods will bless you. But the gods don't hear our cries for peace. They don't see, they don't listen, they don't care, and they don't feel. They don't understand our need for peace, our longing for it, the craving deep in our soul that we try vainly to fill with more. While the altars may be covered with our sacrificial offerings, they are empty of any real power to bring peace. And Paul saw it in his day everywhere. Athens, a city full of people, longing for peace and trying to purchase it from their gods 
with the gifts that they laid before blind, deaf, and dumb statues. And Paul delivers to the Athenians a powerful message telling them the truth, the story of Christmas. That you can't buy peace. You can only receive it as a gift from the one who purchased it for you. Let's take a look at what he says. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verse 22 through 34. And this is Paul when he addresses the Areopagus, the men of Athens. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, Agnostos Theon, the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined, joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul says, guys, I know you're very religious. I see it everywhere. You literally have idols on every corner and for everything. You even have an altar to a God that you don't even know, to literally the agnostotheo, the unknown God. Just in case you missed one, like, we might not have gotten all of them, so we'll cover all of them with this blanket statement here. It's so very funny, for many years, critical scholars of the New Testament thought, ah, this is just another sign that the Gospels are made up that the Bible is fictitious because we've not found anything historically to back this up. Actually, we have. There's quite a few altars that say to the unknown God, and they're prominently on display in museums now. 
This isn't a made-up account. This is a true story. Paul stood before these men and proclaimed to them the gospel based upon one of their own altars. He said, what if I told you that this one God who you missed, this one God who you hail as unknown, that he's the only one that's real, that he's the only one who has any power whatsoever, that all these other statues, all these other gods and goddesses that you hail and you worship and you bring your sacrifices before and you serve and you have to move their idols, they're not real. There's no life in them. But what if I told you that this unknown God to you has made himself known to mankind? What if I told you that he has sent me to tell you that he has come into the world in the form of man to make himself clearly and abundantly known? What if I told you that I'm here to tell you about the only God who can give you any peace? And that peace will only come through him. And Paul begins delivering this sermon to the men of the Areopagus, saying, There is only one God. And that while you may not know him yet, he has done something to make himself clearly known to men. So that there is no excuse, none. He said, Before you might have been ignorant, but now there is no excuse for ignorance. God has revealed himself to mankind, showing once and for all that he is not some weak and powerless being who needs anything from men or lives in temples and houses of stone built by our hands as if God needed us. Paul says, it's so very silly, isn't it? That you have to carve your God that you have to make your own God, that you have to move your statue of your God so that you can worship it in the place that you think that it wants to be worshipped? Isn't that silly? If it's really a God, why does it need you to move? Paul says, no, these are empty idols and altars. There is only one true God who is the maker of all, who gives us our very life and breath. And he has clearly shown to us who he is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And I love the way that John opens his gospel narrative. He says in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. Who's he talking about? And why is he talking about him as the word? He's speaking about Jesus, who is the living word of God. He is 
God. He is the very image of the invisible God who man cannot see with his own eyes. He is the direct communication from God about himself to mankind. And I love the way John Piper talks about this in his Christmas devotion book. I've linked this to you guys on Facebook if you want to read it. It's a free book that you can download. It's called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy. And John Piper has one of the best statements and summaries about Jesus being the word of God that I have ever heard. So I'm going to read it to you. He says this, why was he called the word? One way to answer this is to ponder what he might have been called and why this would have been inadequate in relationship to the word. For example, he might have been called the deed. One of the differences between a deed and a word is that a deed is more ambiguous. If we think our words are sometimes unclear and subject to various interpretations, our deeds are far more unclear and ambiguous. Pause right there. You ever played charades? <laughs> then you know exactly what I'm talking about. A deed is a lot more ambiguous than a word. That whole game is structured around this idea of trying to get what this person is communicating through their deeds, their actions. Let's continue. That's why we so often explain ourselves with words. Words capture the meaning of what we do more clearly than the deeds themselves. God did mighty deeds in history, but he gave a certain priority to the word. One of the reasons I think is that he puts a high value on clarity and communication. Pause right there. You ever heard the old phrase, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words? I hate that phrase. <laughs> I hate it. Because the gospel is words. And Jesus himself is described as the word. You want to preach the gospel, you got to use words. Let's continue. Another example is that John might have called him the thought. In the beginning was the thought. But one of the differences between a thought and a word is that a word is generally pictured as moving outward from the thinker for the sake of establishing communication. I think John wanted us to conceive of the Son of God as existing both for the sake of communication between him and the Father and for the sake of appearing in history as God's communication to us. God didn't just think the message. He communicates it. The word comes out from the Father. It goes forward to communicate something clearly. This is the one of the things that's so depressing to me about people who claim to be agnostics. Well, we can't know God. Really? I beg to differ. Because God has made himself abundantly known through his communication to us. How can you possibly know about a God? The only way is if he talks to you. A third example is that John might have called him the feeling. In the beginning was the feeling. But again, I would say, feelings don't carry any clear conception or intention or meaning. Feelings like deeds are ambiguous and need to be explained with words. So it seems to me that calling Jesus the word is John's way of emphasizing that the very existence of the Son of God is for the sake of communication. 
first and foremost, he exists and has always existed from all eternity for the sake of communication with the Father. Secondarily, but infinitely important for us, the Son of God became divine communication to us. One might say in summary, calling Jesus the Word implies that he is God expressing himself to us. Jesus is the Word. The revelation of God to mankind. He is the fullest expression, the most perfect expression of who God is and what God's will is. He is the fullest and most perfect expression of God's love and justice, his mercy and his wrath. He is the only way that we may have hope. He is the only way that we may understand what love is. He is the only way that we may experience joy, and he is the only way that we may attain peace. And through Jesus' coming, we may indeed have peace. Peace on earth, between ourselves and within ourselves. And eternal peace, most importantly, between us and the Father. Go tell it on the mountain. This is why we sing this song. Because there is peace to be had in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul stood so many years ago on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why evangelism is so important and vital. The world may never have peace by trying to purchase it on the altars of consumerism. Peace has already been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. The only way to attain peace is from Jesus. This time of year in particular, so many of us long for and desire peace. Peace between ourselves and our families, peace within ourselves and our own minds and thoughts, peace between ourselves and our God. And the only way that we may have it is through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Today, if you have been looking for peace, I tell you the truth, you can have it. You can have it. It is a free gift from God. All you have to do is receive it. We're going to have a time of invitation. And as we sing this song, this is a moment for you to receive this peace from God. To accept Jesus as Lord, to hail him as Lord to declare that he is Lord and Savior. And today, if you need to make that decision, this time is for you. I want you to do that as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, 
visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.